I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Perhaps it would be better not to speak of change, but of opening of expansion of the possibility of wisdom, ease, a compassionate heart, of opening beyond our limitations, our small sense of self. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. For those of you who are here in the last, uh, over the last couple of weeks, I did a two-part series of talks about uh, mindfulness of death and dying, um, particularly in relation to the death of my father. I spoke about that extensively last week. I had a dream about him two nights ago. I was in a very elegant hotel room um, with my wife and daughter. It was a hotel room similar to that which my mother stayed in uh, the week before during the funeral in Philadelphia. And we were there and my father came into the room and started to fix the television. He took it apart and was fixing the, installing this beam splitter so the picture could go several different places at once. Um, And he had, when we were children, uh, he built us the first television in the neighborhood in 1949 from a radar. It had a green radar screen and these little, you know, um, puppets, well, Kukla, Fran, and Ollie on the screen, radar screen. So that was one of the things he did. Um, so he was there fixing the television. And my daughter, Caroline, said, um, but Daddy, what is he doing here? I thought uh, that your father died. And I turned to him and I said, Oh, he doesn't know he's dead, right? <laughs> and then he finished fixing it and got it all working. And then I looked at him. I said, you know, you look really good, Dad. You lo- he looked younger, like 50 instead of 75 and healthier and better. I said, I'm really happy to see you. I- I've missed you. Um, but I'm sorry to tell you this, that you've died. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me a little bit puzzled, but there was a way in which... He also knew already what I had to say to him, and he kind of acknowledged that, and then he vanished. So that's the next installment in that series of stories about my father. And in a strange way, as other people have said as well, when someone dies, there's not only less of them, because you can't call them on the phone in a certain way or go see them, but there's also more of them. And now my father is, wherever I go, there he is. Um, he's here. I go for a walk in the woods and my father's there. I go to meditate and he's there. So it's not just less, but somehow he's expanded. So this evening, 
I'd like to speak on the topic of transformation, transformation of our life and spiritual life. Um, and this particular talk got its genesis. I've done it one other time before. From a phone call uh, of a journalist and a friend, Katie Butler, who writes for the Chronicle and New Yorker and various things. And Katie called and said, um, I need to talk to a spiritual teacher because Glamour magazine has asked me to do an article on lasting change. You know, <laughs> I guess that's the diet that really works. <laughs> now, it's true that for a Buddhist, that's an oxymoron, lasting change, since everything changes. It's sort of like army intelligence or something, just something that doesn't exist in the same. So I began to, began to reflect about what makes lasting change for Glamour magazine. And we talk about spiritual development as we've gone through now many weeks or in some cases years of teachings and meditation practice. How does spiritual life change us in lasting or significant ways? When I first began to practice, I saw my own spiritual development as problems to solve or some kind of battle that I had to do to work with my ego or my attachments or defilements, you know, greed and hatred and delusion and laziness and so forth and fix up the, you know, what I could of the good parts and get rid of the bad parts and kind of improve myself a great deal. But now I see it in quite a different way that all of these forces of greed and hatred and fear and prejudice and, and uh, laziness and so forth really arise from something deeper than their own nature. They don't arise, you know, because we're bad and we have to fix ourselves. They arise out of a misunderstanding of who we are. Now, in truth, the Buddhist view of our life is much more dynamic than that question lasting change would uh, imply. The Buddha spoke about human life as five ongoing processes. The process of the physical body and senses, always changing sounds and sights and smells and tastes and physical perceptions. That's a stream of changing experience in the body. A stream of changing feelings. Anybody notice that? Moods and feelings, non-stop. Say, oh, I want this kind of feeling only. Does it work? Always changing. A stream of memory and perception, seeing things in certain ways, remembering, recognizing. A stream of our responses, all our thoughts and ideas and responses to things. Notice that one. And then the stream of knowing, of consciousness, that's aware of feelings or aware of senses in the body or aware of our thoughts. And these five processes repeat in patterns the same way that if you take an acorn and plant it, as we've talked about, becomes a seedling and a sapling and a small oak tree and a great oak tree and there's more acorns. And when you plant the acorn, you always get oak trees. You don't get mango or apple or plum or banana. You get oak trees. In the same way, we are alive like that process of tree, of the acorn and the seedling and sapling, we too grow and change. We're never constant, but we follow certain patterns or laws of our life. And in this process of our life of change, the patterns follow our heart, our consciousness, our intention. Mind is the forerunner of all things. We are what we think. All that we are arises from our thoughts and our heart. If we speak or act with an impure heart and mind, sorrow follows us as surely as the cart follows the oxen that draws it. If we speak or act with a heart or mind pure, which means full of understanding or compassion, connection, then happiness follows as surely as our own shadow. Those are the words of the Buddha. So that our heart 
is the garden into which we plant seeds and nourish them. Depending what our intention, gradually we shape the patterns of our life. If we practice one thing or another, that's what becomes. What's important then is not so much what we say or do, but what is the intention with that? Because you can say the exact same words to someone and have different intentions. You can do it to get even, or you can say the same words as a question to find out, and they have entirely different responses. So the, the patterns, these five patterns of our life, are shaped by our consciousness or our heart. Now, let's take the puzzle a step further. Suppose we decide to transform ourselves, to change, to become spiritually better or psychologically better or something in some way, and we decide we're going to change. We make that decision, but then we discover that our body and our mind, our feelings and our habits don't necessarily follow our decision, do they? I mean, you just sit for a moment in meditation and you listen to the inner dialogue, even the spiritual voices. There are all those voices in there, kind of. But if you even pick out and say, all right, you, the spiritual ones, come leave the table, the banter of all the others, speak to me. One will say, oh, what you need is self-acceptance and love, you know, or maybe you just need somebody to hold you to get through the night, whatever it is, but you just need more kindness. And another spiritual voice says, no, nah, you need to improve. You know, you need more discipline. You need a more regular spiritual practice. You need to spend more time with spiritual people. You know, you need to make spiritual New Year's resolutions, right? And so even, even in the spiritual voices inside, they disagree. Your mind has a mind of its own. And the power of habits are very strong, as we know. Two gentlemen of unsteady and tipsy gait waited impatiently at the bus terminal late at night, long after all the buses had ceased to run. A couple hours passed before they even realized in their drunkenness that the last bus was gone. Seeing several buses parked at the depot, they decided to borrow one and drive themselves home. But to their great disappointment, they couldn't find the bus they wanted. Can you believe it, said one, a hundred buses and not a single number 36 in the lot. <laughs> Never mind, said the other, let's take a 22 up to its last stop and we can walk the last two miles home. Right? So the habits are really strong. Even you're drunk and they happen, right? Maybe especially. At a retreat, one of the desert retreats, um, a friend and, and teacher here, Robert Hall, who's a healer and a meditation teacher, was leading meditation and movement. And he said that a person came up to him who lived a long time with some physical disability and a lot of pain. He said, oh, you're a healer and body worker. Can you help me? I'm sitting and there's this pain. And so he said, well, why don't you try sitting this way? Oh, that didn't work. That was I'd already tried that. Well, why don't you try these stretches here? I'll show you some stretching exercises. Oh, I've done lots of stretches. Um, well, do you want some body work? Oh, I've had all kinds of body work. Well, maybe you should try some anti-inflammatories just to soften that. Oh, I've tried anti-inflammatories. And he went on through a repertoire of all the things he thought might heal this person and got a kind of no response each time. And finally, Robert said, I'm not sure that I can help you. And the man said, really? He said, well, I get a sense that your intention to stay the same is stronger than your intention to change. You understand? Then what does bring about a conscious change, a transformation in our life? Perhaps it would be better not to speak of change, but of opening, of expansion of the possibility of wisdom, ease, a compassionate heart, of opening beyond our limitations, our small sense of self, what is sometimes called the body of fear. So in the Tao Te Ching, remember it says, if you don't realize the source, who you are, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, 
kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you, and when death comes, even then, you are ready. So what brings about really a change in our being? Sometimes it comes when we love something fully and greatly with all of our heart, whether it's music that we love with a passion or a person or children or justice for all races that we really want. We love justice or wild lands that must be kept wild, parklands. It almost doesn't matter. But if we love something deeply, we become forgiving and flexible and caring and most importantly, sacrificing in some way. In that joy and caring, it's as if we step beyond this small sense of ourself, this sense of limitation, and find some whole other amazing capacity. Like a friend that I have uh, who lived in uh, Hawaii, had raised five children, a single mom, and her youngest daughter was in a car accident driving. I think she was 16 or 17 at the time, and gravely injured and paralyzed. And the doctors in the hospital said, we don't think she's going to get better. She's probably just going to live her life unable to see clearly, unable to move her body. And her mother would not accept that and sat with her daughter and said, I know that she's in there. I know that something could be different. And she moved into the hospital and then into the rehab hospital and spent two years just moving her daughter's arm back and forth and looking in her eye, capturing her attention and having her moving something, having her look one way and look the other for two years until her daughter could see again and speak again properly and reach and grab things and it worked. And then her daughter developed and grew and finished school, college, law school, got married. But nothing, um, I mean, you couldn't pay for that. You could pay no one to do that. But sometimes when we love something so deeply, all of a sudden who we are gets much bigger than who we thought we were. And it makes a change that changes our life. Sometimes genuine change comes through suffering. The Buddha said that there are four ways that we develop in spiritual practice, depending on our nature. For some, it is quickly and with great joy and happiness. For others, the second way, it is with great joy and happiness, but slowly. For the third variety of people, it is with pain and suffering and quickly. And then for many of us, it is slowly and with a great deal of pain and suffering. <laughs> I don't know. You can find yourself in that. But in the acknowledgement, in the willingness to see the pain of our life, the pain of our old ways becomes apparent to us. We start to get sick of the way we've been. Really feel the pain of it. We feel the pain of our attachment to the point where it becomes too painful to keep doing it, or the pain of our reactiveness, or the pain of our fear, or our addiction, or our dependency. We feel it not because we're supposed to change or it would be a, you know, a nice, smiling, better person or something, but we're just sick of it. We can't do it anymore. It's too hard acting in that way, being that attached or that frightened. And when we actually get it and sense it in ourselves, the repeated patterns that cause pain very deeply in ourselves, I'm just, I can't do that to myself anymore. Like the ex-hostages visiting one another, have you forgiven your captors? No, I'll never forgive them for what happened. Well, in that case, they still have you in prison, don't they? It's that. We start to sense in ourselves the prison that we make, and it becomes unbearable. We say, I can't do this anymore. Another way we change. Sometimes it's simply sitting in the midst of our life and facing whatever darkness or loneliness 
or fear has chased us or come upon us. And recognizing in our heart that we are greater than that. It's like the man I spoke of who came to a retreat some years ago after his daughter died in a car accident where he was driving and she was a four or five-year-old girl and she didn't have a seatbelt on. And so he sat with incredible guilt and remorse and shame and regret and had every kind of spiritual assistance to help him. He was saying mantras and visited teachers and surrounded himself with holy pictures and, and beads and crystals and whatever. And finally I said to him, you know, could you imagine putting aside all those pictures and beads and mantras and prayers and everything you're doing and just sit, come in and just sit without any of that. And he agreed and he sat down and in five minutes he was crying. And in 10 minutes he was just wailing and weeping for the grief that he carried that even those spiritual things protected him from. Sometimes we change when we sit in the midst of what we've always run from. And it might be the initiation that comes from a divorce or from the loss of a loved one or the cancer that we have or that someone we love has or the death of someone close to us, something that's very difficult. And we sit and we say, I will let myself really be with this. And our heart grows and our sense of our self and our compassion grows. Sometimes we're changed by the inspiration that touches us from the world around. We listen to some piece of music, like that piece of music I played last week. Somehow it really changed my whole sense of my father to hear that piece of music. Or we walk in the mountains on a magic day and there's a rainbow that we see or the clouds in this incredible thunderstorm or the trees in the fog or we just go down in one of these November days and walk at Muir Beach and look at the ocean and there's that moment where life becomes so precious and beautiful to us. Or maybe it's meeting a person that's like that mountain or that rainbow where we meet this person as a benefactor and we look at them and they look at us and somehow we know, oh, this is possible. Something entirely different is possible. I felt it when I met my teacher, Ajahn Chah, who laughed a lot and, and there was people coming with terrible stories and suffering and he met them and he was very compassionate. But in the middle of it, he had this wonderful laugh. He just laughed a lot. Or Sasaki Roshi, who I did a series of Zen Sashin with, now he's 85. The Zen Sashin, where you sit unmoving for seven days and nights, you get up after an hour and you walk a little bit and you sit down and you don't move where they hit you with a stick and you go in and you see him four or five times a day. He asks you the answer to the koan. There's 50 or 60 people at the retreat. He sees five times a day. It means he has 200 interviews a day. And you go in and he says, what koan you work on? Tell him the koan. And he's there. And if you're frightened, he might look at you and become frightened with you and say, oh, scary, isn't it? You know, or you think you're doing good, he'll ring the bell and say, oh, too much pride. Send you out. No good. Two percent. Oh, big ego. Send you out. Come back again. Or you go in and you're really sad. And he looks at you and tears roll down his cheeks. Amazing to be with a person. I was with him many, many, many times, sitting and working, trying to be alert, trying to answer my koan. And here he was seeing 200 people a day, right? And he's 80 years old. He was more present every time I saw him than I ever am. It was quite amazing. <laughs> so you meet somebody and somebody said to Sasaki Roshi, why did you come to America to teach? He said, I didn't come to America to teach. I let other people do the teaching, people like me maybe or something. He said, I came to the U.S. to have a good time. <laughs> I want Americans to learn how to really laugh. So sometimes we get changed because we meet somebody and we say, oh, that's possible. Look at that. Anything's possible. But even so, 
we get touched, whether it's the mountains or some extraordinary person or some piece of music or something that awakens us, we get inspired, we get reminded, new visions, new possibilities appear. But then what happens? Disappears, slips away, we lose it, we go back, huh? You know, like our travel, there was this cartoon in The New Yorker and it was LAX, Los Angeles Airport, and there was a customs that you had to go through as you came in. And it was a flight that had just landed from New York. And it said, this is West Coast Customs. Please check here. Any New York bad vibes, any cynicism or doubts in crystals, bodywork, aromatherapy, or spiritual consciousness, any of those doubts you leave here, you're back on the West Coast, right? So we do it. We have this awakening or this thing that touches us in some way. But easily we forget. So that it doesn't just change in our mind or become a memory. The question becomes, what grounds this realization? What keeps it alive for us in this life? Several things. One is to sense the transformation in our own body. To make it really our own. To change the patterns of our life. We have to feel it really directly in our body. For example, to feel what it's like not to forgive. Not just the idea, oh, you should forgive, or some kind of spiritual ideal, but feel inside what it's like not to forgive over time. And it starts to make sense to us in a lasting way. Or to feel the fire that comes from hatred, anger, and confrontation. Not that you should or shouldn't be angry. There may be appropriate places to be angry, but to carry it as hatred, to feel what that's like actually in your own body, to sense it, to feel its roots. And to sit in meditation becomes then, you'll notice it, a bodily transformation. There's opening, there's physical healing, there's release, And there's coming over some time to a kind of cellular rest, a cellular well-being. And when you feel that, one of the great teachings in loving-kindness meditation is you do loving-kindness first for the people that are easy and that you care about. May they be filled with happiness, the children you love, the people that you most care about, and your heart opens and you feel this great warmth and connection. And then you go on. And finally, when you're way open, then you're asked to picture somebody that you hate or you as an enemy. And you put him in your mind, you know, I hate this person. And you feel your heart go from that to like that. It shrinks. And you experience the pain, not that you should love them. I mean, it's only, it's up to you. But you feel how painful it is to close your heart, how much it hurts. So as we sit in meditation, we gradually learn There's a transformation of our body. Learn to feel our life in this physical reality. And there's an opening that's very beautiful and compelling. And that attention to our body keeps our true uh, awakening alive. What else grounds it, keeps this sense of transformation really present for us? A deep and compassionate acceptance. I've told this story before. Um, When I was first working as a psychologist, which was almost 20 years ago, 1974, and I met Robert Hall again as a friend in 1974, And he was already a a quite well-known psychiatrist. He founded the Gestalt Institute of San Francisco and was was one of Fritz Perl's main protégés at Esalen and so forth. And I told Robert, I said, you know, I'm getting to really understand in my therapy training and so forth, I'm pretty good at diagnostics. I can tell what's wrong with people, what their problems are, and even what the source of it, how they learned it or what happened. But what I'm not so good yet at is helping them to change, helping them to fix that or get better. And he looked at me and he said, oh, I don't do that. And I said, you don't? What do you do? 
And he said, in my work, what my work is, is to sit with people and have them fully accept who they are. Just that much. So the second aspect of what makes transformation really alive and authentic in us is a profound kind of self-acceptance. And out of that, change comes naturally. When the Dalai Lama was teaching this series of teachings in New Mexico recently, um, he did Shanti Deva's text on patience. And that patience, not the patience which we use the word patience to mean impatience, like you're patiently waiting, right, as if something will come. <laughs> but patience really meant the, the trust in things, the love of things as they are, the letting things unfold. And he talked and he read this text and he did all these teachings. And then in the end, he said, I will read the text to you one more time. And he read about the beauty of a trusting heart, of a patient heart. And as he did it, and as he read it and gave these teachings, he started to weep. He just, he put his head down and he just started to cry and sob because it was so beautiful and so true. Sylvia told this story today at the retreat. We were just had our afternoon Dharma talk at Santa Sabina where there's this retreat for 60 or 70 of us that's been going on for a week and a half now that I'm part of. Um, She spoke about a friend who had died that actually a number of of people I know sat with. I'm not sure if I sat with her or not, but Stephen Levine and Sylvia and um, Mary or several of the teachers here all were part of helping this particular woman die some years ago, who was one of the first people to work in the kind of hospice work that Stephen was doing. And this woman had cancer, and it was a kind of prolonged, slow decline for her, and she was a a friend of many people, a lovely being. Finally, she kind of lapsed into this coma. People were sitting with her, taking turns around the clock, chanting, just being with her. And they thought, well, her breathing has gotten very fine and faint. And she said all her goodbyes. There was this big party she had, and people came. And she finished her business. She wrote out her will. She talked to everybody. And her body was getting very weak. She's going to die. And so people were sitting and waiting. And for a week or two, she got weaker and weaker coma, not speaking, well, she's just about to go out any time. After a couple of weeks of that, she opened her eyes. She sat up. She said, I'm hungry, right? (laughs) She wanted something to eat. Bring me something to eat. And for whatever reason, she came out of the coma. And she talked to people. She visited with some friends. Um, She hung out for a while for almost a month. And Sylvia said, so I went to be with her toward the end of that month. And she was starting to get weaker again. And it looked like she might be closer to dying. But she was kind of sitting up in her bed reading the Chronicle, the Sunday paper. And I looked at her and I said, what are you doing? You know, you look like you're getting weaker and you've been meditating stuff. Here you are reading the paper. Would you explain this to me? And she said, it's like this. She said, you know, if you're having a big dinner party, sometimes you cook and you prepare and you get all the stuff ready and you're not even quite done and the doorbell rings and they're all there and you're frantic and trying to get it done. Sylvia said, yeah, I know that. She said, and then other times you're having this big party and you cook and prepare and get all the stuff together and you just finish it and the doorbell rings and people are there and you invite them in. It's just perfect timing. Sylvia said, yeah. She said, well... Sometimes you prepare for a dinner party, you cook and you get everything ready and all the stuff prepared and stuff, and it's all ready. And then you look at your clock and it's a half hour till the company's supposed to come. So what do you do? You sit and you read the paper. (laughs) So the second thing that really makes change authentic is an acceptance of ourselves as we are and things as they are, not as they're supposed to be, but really as they are. That acceptance is the ground of spiritual life. Even, you know, we worry about nuclear proliferation and those warheads that are out there that we don't know about or, or other really dangerous things in the earth 
that we need to respond to. The first step in response is to accept what is so, to face the truth of that, whether it's the ozone layer or the, or the pain of our inner cities, the racism in our society, or the fact that there are still um, thousands of nuclear weapons that are kind of out there under somebody's control, but we don't know. All of these things. The first step in an authentic spiritual grounding is simply to accept what is so, to see it. A couple more things that help. Is a sense of the power of practicing our wakefulness. What we practice, we become. Not like the drunks in that story, exactly, although they practiced something and they became that. But as we sit over and over again, or as we practice being conscious with our speech, the ethics of our behavior, speaking truthfully, or acting kindly, over and over and over again, something begins to transform in the patterns of our being. It is like the story I tell. When I was about to get married to my wife, Liana, I thought about it. And I wondered, now, how can you make a commitment, a vow to say, I will love you and be with you and care for you for the rest of my life when our minds are so changeable? I mean, I knew enough about my mind at that point from meditation to not trust it for a damn, you know. (laughs) So how do you do that? How do you make that kind of commitment? I went to this old couple, this old Quaker couple that we used to spend time with in Cambridge. Quite wonderful. He was a professor at Harvard, and she was an artist, and they were in their 70s, and very gracious and beautiful couple. They used to speak in in these and thous whenever they had an argument. It was quite amazing to watch, you know, when I hear thee say that. (laughs) Oh, it was beautiful to hear their arguments. I said, all right, how do you make a commitment for a relationship that you know will last that time? And he said, you don't. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you don't make it once and for all for your life. You make it every day, each morning when you get up. You do it over and over and over. A a repeated intention. The power of our intention is wonderful, and it becomes magnified when it's practiced, breathing in and out, when we simply sit over and over again, we learn to be steady, to open our hearts, our compassion, to be awake. The intention to meet our life with awareness over and over grows in us to hold things in that way. So even in the Buddha's teachings, after the Buddha's enlightenment, there's this funny thing in the, in the texts where Mara, who is the god of evil, The evil one comes and visits the Buddha a number of times after he's enlightened. And each time Mara comes to tempt him or offer him something or trick him in some way, the Buddha looks up and says, oh, is that you, Mara? And Mara says, oh, dear, he knows me. He sees me and kind of slinks away. And it's that, the dialogue is that short and that simple. Is that you again, fear? Oh, I know you. I've seen you so many times. Is that you again, remorse? You know, is that you again? Whatever it happens to be that we've been afraid of. And you start to see it over and over and discover some aspect of your being, your Buddha nature, that's much greater than that voice that comes. Oh, he knows me. She knows me. She sees me for what I am. What matters underneath all of this is, most deeply, a transformation of our identity, of who we think we are. So when the Buddha awakened, there's this beautiful passage, uh, not just for the Buddha, but for all these enlightenments, the, the scriptures are filled with this, the Buddhist texts. Uh, now the eye of knowledge awakened, the eye of wisdom, the great heart of compassion, like a lamp that had been overturned, set upright like light coming into the darkness, and a hundred thousand angels and beings awakened and rejoiced, and the trees rained down flowers, and all these kind of beautiful myths and metaphors. 
that come in the moment when we remember who we are. Not just know it in some way or see it, but sense it with our whole being and body. When we go beyond the limited or small sense of ourself. So you look in Glamour magazine, since that's where we started, you know, and there are the articles about how to get along with your mom or what to do in relation to your boyfriend or sex life, you know, or school. Um, And these are all the kinds of concerns or how to get a good job or how to look a certain way. But this set of teachings isn't how you look or how to get along or whatever. It's rather, who are you in the midst of all these things you can do to remember your own true nature? And Satori, stream entry, awakening, whatever you call that, there are all these wonderful words for Kensho, for um, realization, is that moment when we move from this sense of separateness, the body of fear, and, and open and say, yes, I am all of this and none of it. I am a stream connected with it all. And that fearlessness and compassion is realized, is sensed within us. And that is the real transformation, not a change of some habit. Those can happen sometimes, but most deeply, a change in who we know ourselves to be. It's like the story of this mouse who was so frightened all the time, and he lived in the hut of this wizard or the magician. And he went to the wizard one day and he said, I'm so tired of being a mouse. I'm so frightened. Can't you help me? Won't you make me into something else? Please make me into a cat. So the wizard, you know, all of the proper mantras and things, and the mouse turned into a cat. Was happy for a short while, some hours, until the cat ran into a dog. And the dog started to bark and chase it. And the cat became frightened and ran up a tree, and the dog barked a lot, and over the next days tormented the cat. And finally the cat, kind of no dog around, went into the hut of the magician and said, please, I'm frightened being a cat. It's too scary and difficult. Please make me a dog. So the magician did the proper mantra and turned him into a dog. Ah, barking, happy, right? But then as soon as he barked, the people came and they beat him. Be quiet. They hit him with sticks. Hmm, didn't like that. Barked more, got beaten again. Very unhappy, frightened, didn't want to bark, didn't know what to do. Finally went back to the wizard, said, too small being a dog. Make me an elephant. No one will beat me then. Wizard said, you sure? said, absolutely. So turned him into an elephant. There's this elephant, now wandering around near the village, taking his ease, eating. And what should come out from the village toward the elephant one morning but a mouse, at least in this story. And the elephant trumpet shrieks and runs away and goes back to the wizard and says, the magician said, I'm terrified of mice. And the magician said, No matter what I turn you into, it will not help you because you still have the heart of a mouse. Doesn't matter what form it is. If that's who you think you are, if you think you're a mouse, no matter what form you're in or what the circumstances are, that's how life will seem to you. But it's not your true nature. If you don't know it now, you'll know it when you die, but much better to learn it now. So my teacher in India, Nisargadot, said, you know yourself only through your senses and ideas. You take yourself to be whatever they suggest. I'm this, I'm that, I'm happy, sad, I'm smart, I'm weak, I'm all the ideas we have. To myself, I am neither perceivable nor conceivable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this is what I am. You take yourself, you identify with everything so easily. For me, this is impossible. Wisdom sees that I am nothing. And being nothing, I am everything. That is all. There is in moments, sitting still, walking in the mountains, the moments I spoke of, that possibility 
of remembering, of awakening to that which is timeless or deathless, in which we know that we are a part of a whole and yet not separate from it. And when we see this and sense this, then everything is a part of us. And it's unbearably beautiful and unbearably painful at the same time. It has the ocean of tears and joy completely intertwined. And from that place, there's this incredible love of the world that comes just for what it is. Rumi writes of it in this poem. He says, if anyone asks you how the perfect satisfaction of all our sexual wanting will look, lift your face and say, like this. When someone mentions the gracefulness of the night sky, climb up on the roof and dance and say, like this. If anyone wants to know what spirit is or God's fragrance means, lean your head toward him or her, keep your face close, like this. If anyone wonders how Jesus raised the dead, don't try to explain the miracle. Kiss them on the lips, like this. When somebody asks you what there is to do in this world, light the candle in his hand like this. So when we touch or awaken our heart in this way, our old habits come back, they reoccur. But there isn't that confusion of who we are. We know that's not, the habits come back, but we know that's not who we are. We sense instead a kind of nobility. That's a frequent word in the spiritual texts. A nobility of a king or a queen or a prince or a princess. The dignity of our own Buddha nature, that we belong on this earth just as we are in this unique body, in this unique being. And when we have that, we discover it's contagious. It's wonderful. Other people catch it from us, and we catch it from them out of this nobility. Whenever two or more of us are gathered in his name, whenever we act from that spirit, everything around us feels this. It's quite beautiful. So that there is this wonderful monk who lives in Thailand, and during the riots and shooting several years ago, the student riots and the turning of Bangkok upside down and the army was fighting against the students and killing a lot of people. He went out with his robes and his begging bowl in the morning, barefoot, followed by 200 monks from all of his temples that he'd gathered together and some nuns. And they took their bowls and they walked, they were shooting, and they walked right through the line of fire between them. And then they stopped and they stood there for an hour and they just meditated. And it completely stopped out of the respect that people had for the presence of this man and the robes. And I'm starting to think to myself, why doesn't the Pope and the head of the Greek Orthodox Church, you know, and the head of the, um, the, the great mosque in Cairo, whoever, or the, or the Ayatollah from, from uh, Iran, and um, the Dalai Lama and six other people like that all walk, go to uh, Yugoslavia and hold hands and walk to Sarajevo. And, and people who represent everyone in that conflict from each of those, and just do that. Because I don't think they would be shot. I think that they would represent something else. And when we live from that place, we have the power an incredible power to affect the world around us, not by what we say or even by our actions, because over thousands of years, who knows what will be or should be, but really from our being. It's like Suzuki Roshi's and master, the tribute paid to him by the student, where she wrote, this person who is a realized, a Roshi, lives in that perfect freedom which is the potential for each human being in the fullness of their being. There's humility, joyousness, straightforwardness, joyousness, uncanny perspicacity, unfathomable compassion. Their whole being testifies to what it means to live in the reality of the present. Without anything said or done, just a moment of meeting such a person 
the impact of that, can change one's whole sense of life. But in the end, it is not the extraordinariness of a teacher which perplexes or intrigues or deepens the student. It is the teacher's utter ordinariness because they are just themselves. They are the mirror for their students or whoever is around them. Just in being ourselves, in resting in our true nature, the world becomes changed. So lasting change, this is where we started, is really a shift of who we are. To live in the truth of who we are is not some perfection, fit some ideal, become a certain way, but rather resuming, resting in our heart, resuming that which we know ourselves to be, remembering that through feeling it in our body, through practicing it over, through sensing it in the world around us again and again. And out of that comes wonderful blessings to us and to all we touch. I have just three things to teach, says the Tao. Simplicity, patience, and compassion. These three are your great treasures. Simple in action and thought, you return to the source of your being. Patient with both friends and enemies. This is interesting. It doesn't say you don't have enemies. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. Thus the wise woman residing in the Tao sets an example for all beings. Because she doesn't display herself, people see her light. Because she has nothing to prove, people can trust her words. Because she doesn't know who she is, people recognize themselves in her. Because she has no goal in mind, everything she does succeeds. And so the last words of the Buddha to all those who were around him as he was dying were very simple words. He said, be a light, be a lamp, be yourself a light and illuminate the world. So let's sit for a moment. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th.